0: Well, thank you very much, Ben. G'day, everyone. Wow. Well, (laughs) g'day, everyone. Oh, thank you so much. Lovely to see you. I'm Dave, if we haven't had the chance to meet before. Great to see uh, so many new faces here. And because of that, let me, well, do me a favor. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm so pleased you got to sit next to me tonight. Go, do that. That's good, that's good, that's good. Okay, and now, turn to the person on the other side, turn to the person on the other side and say, I'm sorry I didn't start with you. Can you do that? I'm sorry I didn't start with you. They're so rude. <laughs> Oi, it's great to be here with you guys uh, tonight. I want to speak to you uh, tonight, I want to get you thinking uh, tonight about this book, that's a surprise, about the Bible. Okay, you know, I want to put to you, it's not possible to read this book. Uh, to really look into it for any particular length of time for yourself, okay, not inherit kind of all your family's doing it, but for you, no, no matter what age you are, it's not possible to look into this book to read what the Bible says, to read what God says about about uh, life and about meaning and purpose before you come face to face with a culture clash. In other words, let me put it like this. God's perspective on life, on you, on me, on meaning, on purpose, on on the reason that we're here, all those things, is completely contrary to the perspective of life that we see in our culture. And so there's a clash. However, I want to put to you that the clash is not the one you may think. You see, for many of us, when we consider the way that the Bible or Christianity interacts with culture and, and society... What we think about when we think about the sort of the battlegrounds that, and that you guys, for, for the Christian guys here tonight, that you guys might face at uni or at school or at work or at family, for many of us, we think the battleground, this clash, is all happening about the topic of morality. Do you know what I mean? So um, the new kind of ethics and morality that we have in culture about a whole range of issues, sexuality, gender, life, all these sort of things. And many of those things clash with a biblical worldview. And so we can think, oh, the big clash at play in Christianity and the world is about morality. But I want to say that that is a critical misunderstanding of the Christian faith. It's actually, it's not the clash that I'm talking about. You see, the huge issue, the reason why this book is banned in 50 countries around the world why more people are killed for being Christians than any other particular issue, religion, political worldview or anything by a country mile. And that has been the case for 2,000 years. The reason for that is not because of issues of morality. Let me put it like this. You may never have heard this. Christianity is not about morality. morality you know what I mean? Behaviour. Uh, what you do with your body. What now, those things are an overflow of the Christian faith. that talks about it. But it's not the main event. It's not the big deal. It's not the big thing at play. No, 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 no. The major clash that you see happen in culture through the Bible is not about morality, but rather it's the message that God says about you, about why you're alive, about what your life is actually meant to be all about. You see, there's a message that weaves its way through the Bible and legit, it goes all the way from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, a message that just beats away at the heart of it all, which is confrontational, controversial, and endlessly countercultural. There has never been a culture in the history of humanity who has heard this message and gone, ''Ah, oh, I like that.'' No, no, not at all. And yet, despite all of those things, the place where it's most explosive is right here in the human heart. That's the place we most find the culture clash at play in the Bible. And so tonight, what I want to do is show you that message. We're going to look at one of the oldest parts of the Bible, about one of the oldest communities and cultures, in, the oldest community and culture and society in human history, in Genesis chapter 11. And what I want to do as we do that is really look at three questions, okay? Listen, we're going to, we're going to look at um, what is the perspective God offers on humanity? What is this big message that we have here in the Bible? Secondly, is it true? Or if it's just an opinion... If it's it's wrong, who cares? Chuck this out. It means nothing. Is it true? Can we work that out? But thirdly, and here's the one I want you to focus on. What would it look like? If it is true, what would it look like if you took this message seriously? What would your life look like? How would your life have to change? In a moment, uh, I'm going to pray. and we're going to look at that passage, Genesis chapter 11. But before we do, I want to flag something for you, for some of you. At the end of tonight... I'm going to invite you to become a Christian. And for some of you, you know you're not Christians. Um, for some of you, you're not sure where you're at. That usually means you're not a Christian. Not always, but usually. For some of you, think you're Christians, but you're actually not. But my hope is, as we look at these enormously essential building blocks of life, of the Christian faith, that God does a huge work in your heart tonight. And it may have been a work that's been decades in the making. It may have been this way, you may be your first time. It matters not. But I want to give you the opportunity to respond to that tonight by putting your trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and becoming a Christian. And I want to flag it for you now so that if you're not a Christian here tonight, you're listening, okay? I want you to listen, I want you to hear, because I promise you what we're looking at tonight has enormous consequences for your life, not just this one, but the life to come. And if you are a Christian, oi, you should be listening anyway. But nonetheless, I also want to give you a chance to recommit, not reconvert, but to recommit your life to what we're learning here about, about God. So let me pray. Would you do that with me? You bear your heads. Let's, let's pray. Uh, and then we'll look at that passage together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are not silent. Uh, you are not closed-mouthed. You are not disinterested. You're not distant. You're not uncaring. You are love. You speak. You care. You're here. And Lord, I pray for us here tonight, no matter where we come from, no matter where we stand with you, that as you speak through your word, uh, that we would listen, truly listen, not just with our ears, but with our hearts and our souls. And that you would do great work in us, all of us, to bring us closer to you and to point us to Jesus um, in hugely transformative ways. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 11, you've got a Bible, open that up, Genesis chapter 11, that's what we're looking at here. Let me provide a little bit of context for you so you know what part that we're looking at here. Um, Genesis 11 is the last chapter in the first section of Genesis, so Genesis is sort of broken up into its own internal sections. Genesis 11 plays a crucially important part in biblical history. Okay? Genesis 12, you'll see if you've got your Bible in front of you, is all about Abram, Abraham. Abraham this huge moment where this family line begins that we all saw the last few weeks with Joseph and Jacob and so on. Okay, that starts with Abraham. Before chapter 6, 7, 8, you've got Noah and the flood. Okay, Noah and the flood. Um, and that goes all the way through to chapter 9. And then chapter 9, verse 1, let me read for you. Have a look at it yourself, but let me read it for you. God, um, he speaks to Noah, okay? Uh, and he says this, God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the job is simple Breed, go out, have kids. We want lots of kids, fill the earth, go out and do all of those type of things. Then what we read in chapter 10 is suddenly, man, there's, there's you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. There's 70 nations that are listed out here. But how did that happen? Well, Genesis chapter 11, this story we're looking at now, is the story of how that happened. How did the world, how did humanity go from one family, Noah his sons, to boom? Cultures, communities, languages, divisions, boundaries, countries, so on and so forth. Genesis 11 is all about how that happened. And we learn about how it happened through this story which is called the Tower of Babel. Now, if you grew up in a Christian family, you may have heard of this story before. It's a Sunday school kind of story, but not the A-team Sunday school story. You know, it's not, oh, it's no Noah's Ark. There's no little kids playing with the Tower of Babel or anything, okay? It's not David and Goliath. It's just kind of the B-roll. It's interesting, but not that interesting. You think you might, I think it is interesting. I'm just saying, you might think that. Whatever the case, I'm saying that this is a story you may have heard of before, you may have heard of before, but never really paid much attention to, but it's crucially important. Okay, it's only nine verses. Uh, We see here nine verses. But what I want you to pay attention to is that it's really broken up into two parts. The first four verses, there's stories about, there is a story about man's humanity's actions. Then there's a hinge in verse five. And then there's another four verses, the final bit, and it's all about God's reaction. Now, in literature, what we're reading here is called parallelism. Okay, If you've got your Bible in front of you, you'll see it here. Verse 9 answers verse 1. Verse 8 answers verse 2. Verse 7 answers verse 3. So it's like a sort of little step ladder up and down. Okay, And it meets and all hinges on verse 5 in the middle. So I want to show you here, Tower of Babel, humanity, one language. Okay, Humanity. And then what happens next? Let me show you a man's actions. Look at verse 1. After the flood, God tells Noah, Sons, fill the earth. And so the people leave. They leave where they are, but they don't travel very far. They go to a place called Shina. Not China, Shina. Okay? It's in modern day Iraq. It's a a real place. It becomes known as Babylon. Okay? They like it so much, they decide to settle, to put down roots. And they do what people have done forever when they like a place. They build. Have a look there, verse 3, verse 4. They build three things they build bricks. They build a city, and they build a tower, a tower higher than any other that reaches to the heavens. Now, just take a step out for a moment. What we learn in chapter 10, actually, is that this city is called by its inhabitants Babylon. Now, hold on to that. Hold on to that. Babylon. That's a really important city that weaves its way all the way through the Bible. Now, the name Babylon means doorway to God. el If you know the word Elohim, El means God, Bab means gateway, doorway. So these guys, they make the city, they make this tower, they call the whole thing the doorway to God. Now, this is a real place. okay? Archaeologists have discovered where this is. The Babylonians built big towers like this. Uh, There's ruins of them. You can Google them, have a look at them. It's incredibly astonishing technology for the ancient world. We're talking ancient, ancient world. They make bricks, they build these big towers. Let me ask you, if you had to summarize... If you had to, I suppose, assess the behaviour and the, and, the, and the activity of humanity at this point, good or bad? Well, it seems, to be honest, it seems amazing. <laughs> Initiative, um, ingenuity, intellect, hard work, and more than that, look at verse 1. Unity. Here we have black and white proof that everyone at one point spoke English. Boom. That's a joke, man. It's obviously they speak French. Anyway, whatever the case, here we have one language, okay? One language. All the people, it's all working, unity, it's all happening. However, God has a very different perception and perspective than what you and I may have. Look at verse 5. What we see here is a a joke, okay? It's like an Old Testament Hebrew joke. (laughs) You know it's good because I have to explain what it is, okay? Look what it says, verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. What have we got? We've got humanity. They build this huge tower. Where do they try to build it to? Verse 4. To the heavens. They're like, look at this tower. This is the biggest thing humanity has ever made. It's going to reach all the way to the sky. But God, he, he can't even see it. So he has to come down. And in the Hebrew, it's like a dad coming down to look at his son's Lego and be like, oh, that's great, son. Well done. Are you sure those pieces? And it's okay. That's good. Good. In comparison to the creative power, the creative genius of God, who by his very word creates the universe, what is this? It's nothing. It's completely insignificant, but more. It's not just insignificant. What we see in in God's response, God's reaction to man's action, is that God is not just nonplussed by what he views here. He is deeply upset. Look at verse 6. And verse 6 is a key one to look at. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. God is upset at what they've done. So what does he do? He does not topple their tower. He destroys their power. And what we read next is this response to every initiative humanity did. Look at it. They start with one language. God, verse 9, confuses all the languages. They want to build a great city. God makes them leave the city unfinished. They want to unite and reach up to the heavens, but God comes down from the heavens in judgment. They want to stay where they are, but God scatters them throughout the earth. In verse 9, they call themselves Babylon, doorway to God, but God, he calls them Babel. That's another joke. <laughs> because the Hebrew word, Balal, means confused, mixed up, you know, muddled. And that's a pun on the word babel, balal. They call themselves the doorway to God, but God says you're the doorway to confusion. You have no idea what you're talking about. You are completely mixed up. Now, what's the big picture here? Oi, don't miss this part. Listen, how would you assess the response of God to everything that's happened? Very simple. God stops success. Have you got that? God stops success human success. God prevents every initiative that humanity sets its heart to, labors in. God proactively destroys the accomplishments of their hearts. The question is, why? Oh, if you were making a movie of this right now, okay, you're a, you're a Christian film producer. You're like, Joseph, done. Moses, done. Noah, done. That's a terrible film, by the way, with Russell you Have you seen that? Don't waste your time. Watch Gladiator, I said much better. Um, <laughs> where was I? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tower of Babel. At the moment, you're that film producer. Who's the goodie and who's the baddie? Oi. I'm going to stop saying oi now. Okay. The goodie is us, yeah? Humanity. Who's the baddie? Verse 6, man, look at that. How does God come off in verse 6? Do you see this here? Listen. God comes down, he sees this town, and then he says, if as one people speaking in the same language, they've begun to do this, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Now, I've read this passage with a couple of guys over the last few weeks, just to um, yeah, get their sort of instinctive reactions to it. And every single one of us, when we read that verse, how does God come off like a small-minded Pathetic, petty, petulant, joy kill. He comes off as if he is threatened by these guys. Oh, if they can do this, imagine what they will do. I'll be completely superfluous. There'll be no reason for, for anyone to ever need me. Oh my goodness, I need to destroy this because it's such a threat to me. They'll overthrow me, in my power in heaven. But is that really what's going on? Well, if you've been with us at Genesis over the last term or so, you will know that um, the book of Genesis has layers to it. Think of like past the parcel. You know, past the parcel, you get the little gift at each layer, the big layer, big present in the middle. It's kind of like that. Okay, you've got what you're reading on surface level, but then you see where it lands in the context of the rest of not only Genesis, but the Bible, uh, how it works throughout the, the narrative of, of all of Scripture put together. And when you see the context and understand the context, particularly for Genesis, I've got to say, what you notice is that actually, hold on, this is not a story of God the baddie and people the, the goodies, this is... Something completely different. Let me show you. There's a couple of breadcrumbs here. Look at verse 2, verse 3. Verse 2 in particular. That's all I want. Look at verse 2. Let me read it to you. See if you spot it. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. What could be wrong with that? Well, if you've been with us through Genesis, you will know that whenever people move eastward in the book of Genesis, it's symbolically representative of moving away from God Adam and Eve, they're booted out of Eden to the east of Eden. Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel, booted to the east, the land not to the east. Later on, Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot goes east to Sodom. It really happened. They did move east truly in human history, but it's also symbolic of people moving away from God. But not only that, remember chapter 9 verse 1, what does God command the people to do? Breed, go out and have babies. That's what I want. Lots of children. Keep going. Keep moving. Fill the earth. But verse 2, what do they do? They settle. They settle. They don't don't move. They they stay. Yet those are just little breadcrumbs, my friends. Little signposts pointing us to the big issue at play here. You see, the big message that God has for humanity is in verse 4. You and I, our lives, man, all about verse 4. So I'm going to read that and I want you to spot, not what's there, but I want you to spot actually what's missing. Let me read it. Come, let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the whole face of the earth. Now, hold on a second. They build a city so they won't be scattered. In other words, they don't trust God's plan. They don't trust his provision. They don't trust his purpose for them. Instead, they look to themselves to find their security, to find their safety. They they look to one another, to me, not he, to me, to we, not he, me. It's all about me. Then secondly, what do they do? They build a tower so that they will do what? Have a name for themselves. What does that mean? That they will be remembered. They will be famous They will have a legacy. People will respect them. They will have a reputation. They will be well thought of. Their entire life mission is to see themselves praised. Security, significance, dreams, desires. But what's missing? Did you spot it? In everything they do, in everything they say, in everything they labor in, there is not one mention of God. This is a city dedicated to me, not he, to me. What is the message that God has for you? It doesn't matter who you are. See, sometimes we, we use the Bible, or maybe this has happened to you, and you can have the Bible used as a kind of a set of binoculars. <laughs> you know, Maybe you use it to look down on people well, they're doing this and they're doing that. Oh, no, they're doing this and they're doing that. But my dear friends, whilst the Bible does, there's nothing wrong with judging people. We judge people in a whole bunch of ways, good and bad. I'm not saying that, okay. But while while there are times that we look to each other, we encourage each other, we need to rebuke each other, all that stuff, the primary purpose of what God is speaking in the Word of God is not for you and I to use as a set of binoculars, but for you and I to use as a mirror. What is the message that God is telling us about your life, about my life? What is the message that has been controversial, confrontational, countercultural, caustic, has caused deep controversy throughout the world, that has been relentlessly hated by every culture known to man? It's simple. You ready? What's the message? You are wrong. About what? Everything. You are living your life the wrong way. Your compass is broken. Your ability to read life, to understand what's happening, gone. You need not just glasses, you need a new set of eyes. Your instincts. Your intuitions, your feelings, your emotions, like a, a trolley with bad wheels wobbling away and pushing this way and that way, like a, a guitar that goes out of tune. Always wrong. Not just you individually. We, me, more than you. Let me say, me, I don't know your life. I know the front, I've got the front row seat to my own depravity. But we as people, we are living life the wrong way. Why? Because just like the people in Babel, we focus and center our lives not about he, but about me. Now, there's a word for this. Yeah, there's a word that we use in culture and, and society, um, and there's a word that uh, is certainly used in the Bible, not in this passage, but I think it describes this passage and humanity really, really well. And that word is Pride. Pride, okay? Now, don't be triggered by the word pride, okay? Pride has a whole bunch of different meanings, and it's a confusing word for us because it is used so differently in our culture. It does have a positive meaning if you're proud of achievements, you know. Um, Particularly, you know, if you're proud of someone else's achievements, that's a nice positive use of pride. It means having a healthy self-esteem. It's a good thing. The Bible speaks about that too, by the way. But pride has another definition that is not good, In fact, not just kind of not good, but is really bad. The far more commonly understood definition of the word pride is not healthy self-esteem. It's unrealistic, exaggerated self-love. It's to view yourself as better, superior, higher than everyone else. The words that we associate with it, of course, are arrogance, boasting, vanity. There is a beautiful Australian term that we use for it, up yourself. I have always thought that was rude, but I'm not sure if it is. Don't talk about it, don't look it up. Whatever the case, aren't we beautiful poets of the English language? Up yourself. Now, of course, the problem with pride is it's a bit like bad breath. You can smell it on other people, but you can't smell it on yourself, you know? We notice it in other people. And when we see it in other people, this way that some people treat, they talk down to us. We hate that, don't we? They talk down to us, or they're continually sort of competing with us about small things or trying to make us feel small. And we see that behavior in other people. And what do we do? We hate it, man. It's not good. Okay, if you want to be unpopular, be overly arrogant. Okay, there's a kind of just a natural veering away from it, particularly in Aussie culture. It's a beautiful thing, actually. We just go, man, that's wrong. That ain't right. That's not pleasant. It's not good. But God, check this, God doesn't just dislike pride. I'm going to give you a couple of Bible verses here where God speaks about his opinion of pride. Now, they're from the book of Proverbs. You don't need to go there. I'll just read them for you. I want you to just hear them and hear about God's perspective on pride. Proverbs 8 verse 13, listen to this. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Now you may never think about God hating things, but hear this very loud. God hates pride. He hates it. It's at the very top of the list of wickedness. Of sin. It's the worst sin you can do. Pride. It's actually the root cause of so many other ones. God hates pride. Why? Because He knows what it does. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't pat it on the head and go, oh, well, it's just a little bit of confidence. Don't worry. Good self esteem. No, no, no. Listen to this Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction. What does pride do? Pride destroys it destroys let me play this out in the ways that we see it firstly pride destroys our relationships with one another and we know that i want you to think about every falling out you've ever had every bit of beef every bit of drama and i want to put to you that pride if you dig down deep enough is right at the core of it jealousy bitterness rage envy greed wanting what the other has coveting that's that the word Lust, violence, whatever it is. The root cause of all of it is pride, the feeling that I should not be treated this way. I don't deserve to be treated this way. I should be treated better than this. How dare they treat me like this? And then, even then, to view them in a way that you would hate to be viewed yourself. They've had it easy. They've had an easy one. This is ridiculous. They, They don't deserve respect. I deserve it. Pride continually compares yourself to other people. It means you can never be happy because you're in a continuous state of discontentment. Now, I want to put to you, all of us feel that. Okay? All of us feel that. I'm not a runner, okay? I don't run very much. But when I, ran, I was a runner in high school, and I remember there was one thing above all else that would give me like a boost of energy. And if you're a runner, you'll know what it is. The thing that would give you a boost of energy, you know, like a middle distance race, is to see other runners fall by the wayside. You see them trip or fail or get stitches, and, and you're like, whoo, yeah! It's like fuel, jet fuel. Other people's suffering spurs you on. And we see the same thing in life again and again and again. It destroys your relationship. Now, we see it in a very small way, but I want to say as well, we see it in enormous, huge ways around the world. You know, in the history of humanity, anthropologists, historians estimate that 150 million people have been killed in war. 108 million of those people were killed in the 20th century alone. Did you catch that ratio? It's one of the things where you hear people criticize the Bible or Christianity for being old. You can't trust it. It's old. It was written on papyrus. Not even written on a computer. How can you possibly... We've evolved. We're so much better now. Oh yeah, we're better. Oh, humanity. We're amazing. We have more technology, more more scientific discovery, more ability to do more things due to our intellect. And what do we do with it? Create more and more efficient ways to murder one another. That's what we've done. By the way, 60% of those people were non-combatants. 60% of 150 million non-combatant women, children, the elderly, just murdered. We don't need war, though. 400,000 murders a year. That's three times the amount of people killed in war. Most of those people, who were they killed by? Someone that they knew and loved previously. And what's behind all these things? Religion? Get a grip. Power. Greed. Desire. Envy. Jealousy. Pride. Me. Not we. Me. Not thee. Me. Not he. Me. Above me. Above me. But you see, as bad as that is, it's not the worst part of pride. You see, pride doesn't only destroy the relationships we have with one another. The Bible tells us from the very, very start that pride destroys our relationship with God. Now, you may have heard this a million times. You may never have heard it. It's a great privilege for me to tell it to you. I'm desperate for you to hear it. So if you've fallen asleep, please wake up. Why are you here? You want to know why? You exist for God. God made you for Himself. You are not an accident, you're not a mistake. You might be to your parents, you're not to God. God knew your name before the beginning of the creation of the world. You matter to God, but not because of the things that you do or the things that you don't do, but because of your intrinsic value and worth. Because he made you for his pleasure. You exist for him. The thoughts in your mind exist to think about him, your mouth to praise him, your hands to serve him, your feet to follow him, your knees to to kneel before him, your heart, to love him. You exist for God, and you will always feel like something is missing in life so long as someone is missing, and that someone is God. My friends, you have a hole in your soul that you continually try to fill with a whole bunch of different things, and yet the Bible is clear. That hole exists only to be filled by God, a loving relationship with God, and yet pride says, me, not he. I will not bear to you. I will not follow you. I will not do what you say. I could never believe in a God who makes me do this or that, who says this or that. They disagree with me. Get out of here. Pride destroys our relationship with God. And as a result, it destroys us. Because one day we will stand before God in judgment, not in judgment on behavior, In judgment on relationship. Do you know God as Father? Do you follow Him as King? Is He your Lord? That's what you're judged on, and all of us by our nature are found guilty. We do not do it, we have not do it. We do not do it, we have not do it. And that means that our eternal future, guaranteed by virtue of what we have done, is destruction. You'll be destroyed. Has anyone seen that film Titanic? Good, don't see it. It's a terrible film. My goodness, one of the worst films I've ever seen. In it, and I know you have, by the way. You're lying about it. That's cool. You're in church, whatever. Um, in it, there's a scene with the main character Jack. He's played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and he he um he goes to the very front of the ship, the Titanic, you know, and he stands on top of the railing, and he puts his arms out. It's a really famous scene. Okay, He puts his arms out. And as the wind is blowing through his beautiful blonde hair. Oh, he shouts out. Now is anyone bold enough to tell everyone? What does he say? I'm the? Oh, bless you. I'm the king of the world. I'm the king of the world. And then the ship sinks. And he dies. He's not the king of anything. That's us. That's what pride does. And so is it any wonder then you look at verse 6 and you realize that what you're reading is not what you first thought. Look at verse 6 again, remember? Verse 6, we're like, oh God, petulant, petty, pathetic. You know, so threatened by people. That is not what's going on in verse 6. Listen. If as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them so he scatters humanity across the world who is god protecting by scattering us and mixing our languages it's not him he is not threatened by us we are he's god he's not intimidated by us who does god protect by scattering us and mixing our languages. It's not him, it's us. Look at the evil we've been able to do, and we're not even united. Imagine what we could do to this planet. Imagine what we could do to one another if we had cohesive language and cohesive thought. Well, we don't have to imagine, we know what happens. We saw it happen to the world of Noah with one people, one language. An evilness and wickedness the world had never seen that God had to to wipe out. You see, my friends, the core of pride, the core of me above he, is that we not only follow ourselves and follow what we want more than God, but just like the people in Babel in verse 4 who desire to make a name for themselves and reach up to the heavens, we desire to put ourselves in the place of God. The heart of pride is self-worship. To think of yourself really as God, not as a religious God, like you're not saying you're the creator of the universe. No, no, just pretending that you're the king to find your security in yourself, to find your your. your your, your safety in yourself to look for your legacy and your reputation in what you do and how you do it to get right with God as virtue is what you do to put yourself in the place of God. Now, just press pause. Five minutes left. Okay. See, some of you nodding off. Listen, five minutes left. Be with me. I want to ask you the question, what does this mean for your and my life today? All of this stuff. What does it mean for us? I want to leave you now with two points, okay? Just two. A challenge and a comfort. A hard truth and the best truth you'll ever hear. But you'll never understand the best truth until you hear the hard truth, until you understand exactly what's going on. You see, my friends, I have no doubt that none of you in your backyards have little mini towers of Babel. Okay, I have no doubt whatsoever that none of you are building something to create yourself to be a god and trying to form one language for yourself or going, you know, none of those things, no, 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 no. But my friends, this is exactly where you and I step into this picture. Because as I said before, Babel becomes known as Babylon a city. And Babylon, if you know Daniel and the lions, then that's in the city of Babylon. Babylon becomes one of the great enemies of Israel, of God's people. But more than that, Babylon then becomes a byword, a code word, like a symbolic word that represents Something, what does it represent? The arrogant independence of the human being who rejects God and puts himself in God's position. In the person who says, me, not he, Babylon, that theme emerges again and again and again, all the way to the book of Revelation. Babylon represents cities and countries, kingdoms and cultures, not just one of them or several of them, all of them. It represents Rome, London, Paris, Berlin. It represents Assyria, Baghdad, Beirut, it represents Beijing, New Delhi, it represents even Sydney, even Gosford. (laughs) But Babylon doesn't just represent cities and cultures and communities, Babylon represents people. My friends, the hard truth that you need to come to terms with, that the Bible says about you, is that you and I, we are Babylon, we have Babylonian hearts. Let me put it like this. We're all building something. We're all building our own tower. This tower which we place our own security in, our our identity is formed around it, Our, our reputation, our significance. We're all building something. And all of us are doing it with the complete and utter absence of God. So let me ask you, what are you building? How do you know? Well, let me ask you this. What do you daydream about? What is it that you've done in the future, the future version of yourself where life is perfect? What are those things that you've done? What is truly at the foundation stone of your life? What are you building? What are you placing your identity in? What are you shaping your identity around? What is, who is, the most important person in your life? The truth is, when we're honest, We stop pretending. We all have to admit it's ourselves. It may be big, it may be fame and riches, the nice house, the nice car, blah, blah, blah. It's usually small. Recognition, reputation, respect, renown, significance, security, success. God is saying, if you continue to do that, you are facing destruction. It is the worst thing you can do. Why? Because it completely destroys the relationship with God who made you for him. It's the worst thing you can do. Why? Because you're not God. You're not in control. You're wrong. Your compass is off, guys. It's off. And no matter how impressive the personal kingdom you build... No matter what version of your future, in 10, 20, 15, whatever years, where you've built this life for yourself, no matter what that is, if that is what your life is based upon, it will be destroyed. It will not last. It will not stand. It will not deliver what it promises. It will not provide the success that you think it will. It will not provide the security you think it will. You will still die. It will not provide the significance you think it will. Do you know your grandchildren will struggle to remember your name? Your great grandchildren will have no idea who you are. Your own children will forget where you're buried. Dust to dust. It all goes. One of the most dangerous aspects of pride is that it blinds you to the reality until it's too late. It blinds you to the reality of this. So you think, oh, no, no, it's fine. It's It's not fine. You're not fine. You're going the wrong way. And yet, there's also a comfort. Because you see, while it's true and undoubtedly undeniable that the Bible makes clear we're living life the wrong way, that we are wrong, understanding that you're wrong is not always bad news, is it? I mean, none of us like being told we're wrong. None of us like realizing that we hold a wrong opinion about something. None of us like admitting it. But that's that's not always bad news. In fact, understanding you're wrong can actually be the best news you've ever heard. Imagine going to a doctor and you know, you're just getting an annual checkup. Okay, You have no symptoms, you're not sick, you do all the tests, all the scans, you feel great, yeah, no drama, doctor, you go away, and then you know, she calls you and she says, you need to come in. It's, oh, can you tell me? No. So it's that call. No, you've got to come. And she sits you down and she has an envelope and she opens it up with an extra and she goes, I've got terrible news. I know you think you're fine, but you're not. You have a brain tumour and this brain tumour is going to kill you. There's no symptoms, there's no... But even though you think you're fine, you're wrong, you're not fine, you're dying. Now, that's bad news, isn't it? But then she says, however, and you're like, couldn't you have started with however? However, because we've caught this so early, because because you've got no symptoms and you've come in and you've had these tests, and because we've caught this so early, I'm delighted to tell you that it's completely operable. We can operate on this, and there is 100% chance of success and survival. You're not fine. It's wrong to think you're fine. But when you realize that you're wrong, what does it mean? What does it provide? Where does it point you? It points you to the very thing you need more than anything else to the cure, (laughs) the cure that you'll never see, that you'll never know, unless you realize you're wrong. You see, beating and weaving its way all through the book of Genesis, all through the Bible, and right here in Genesis 11, is another building project. Our building projects fall and collapse, they fall by the wayside, but, but this one It's not made of bricks, it's not made of dreams, it's not made of of money, it's not made of a career or a house or a spouse or... No, no, no. This building project, it's made of people. Look at Genesis chapter 12. After the Lord sends the people out and scatters them and scatters their languages... After humanity had tried its best to reach up to the heavens. God comes down from the heavens. And he appears to a man called Abraham. And he promises to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. I will make your name great. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And see, this is not a building project built by human hands, with human effort and human initiative and endeavors. This is a building project built by God. And it's not laden of foundation of empty dreams and pride and self-security and sufficiency. But through this one family line, as we've been looking at the whole term This one family line from Abram, then to Joseph, to Moses, to David, David to Jacob, Jacob to Joseph, Joseph to a little baby born in a manger. A manger is a dog bowl for donkeys. And yet, this little baby impoverished in a shed is God in the flesh, Jesus. This building project is not built on empty dreams built on the Son of God. He is the cornerstone. He is the rock. He is the foundation of this building project. And he went to a different rock called Golgotha or Calvary, the cross, and there he was killed. He was buried inside a rock. But then the stone was rolled away and he rose from the dead. And I want you to listen to what his best friend and the man who had denied him moments earlier, days earlier, upon seeing his resurrection. I want you to listen to what Peter says, the reading we had, and I'll finish with this. Peter then writes, as you come to him, the living stone, and that's Jesus. As you come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus. Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. This building project is not made of bricks and tar, it's made of living stones, people forgiven, set free, called out of darkness and into light. Jesus Christ has built a new society, a new community, a new culture. It's a building project that will not fade away, but lasts forever. It's one that provides real security It's one that gives you what you're looking for. You will never, ever find what you're looking for in life until you find the one who is looking for you, Jesus. You no longer have to make a name for yourself. You no longer have to prove yourself because this building project is not a building. It's not a club. It's not a secret society. It's a family. It's the family of God and he is calling you To lay down your tools, to throw them aside, and to put your trust in the living stone himself, Jesus, as the cornerstone of your life. And so I want to ask you tonight, is tonight the night where you're going to become a Christian? Would you like to become a Christian? How do you do that? Well, Jesus promises that if anyone calls upon his name, they put their faith in what he's done on their behalf, they will be saved. And so I want to invite you tonight that if that's you, do it. Lay down your tools. Stop building your own little kingdom but trust in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if you're a Christian here tonight and you've been drifting and you know, moving off to the side, started building your own little kingdom in secret, take this moment as well. Throw your tools aside. Renew yourself. Remind yourself. Correlate yourself. Focus your eyes on Jesus and what he's done for you. Build your life on him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I am sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for living life my own way, for building my own kingdom, my own community, my own life on me, not he, on myself, not you. I'm sorry for my sin. Father, forgive me. I lay down my tools at the foot of the cross of Jesus. I'm sorry for trying to build my life without you, Lord. Forgive me. I put my trust in Jesus, and I pray for your help to follow him as my king, to find my security, my significance, my success not in me but in he, to build my life on that rock. Jesus Christ crucified, the name above all names. And for those here who are Christians, Lord, I pray for us, that you would help us renew our minds day by day and to remind ourselves not just who we are, but whose we are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.